Chapter 12 of Master of Life and Death by Robert Silverberg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Walton stared at the photograph of the alien. There was intelligence there. Yes, intelligence and understanding, and perhaps even a sort of compassion. He sighed. There were always qualifications, never unalloyed successes. Colonel McLeod, how long would it take your ship to return to the Procyon system? he asked thoughtfully. McLeod considered the question. Hardly any time, sir. A few days, maybe. Why? Just a wild idea. Tell me about your contact with these, uh, Durnans. Well, sir, they landed after we'd spent more than a week surveying New Earth. There were six of them and they had their translating widget with them. They told us who they were, and wanted to know who we were. We told them. They said they ran the Procyon system, and weren't of a mind to let any alien beings come barging in. Did they sound hostile? Walton asked. Oh, no, just businesslike. We were trespassing, and they asked us to get off. They were cold about it, but not angry. Fine, Walton said. Look here now. Do you think you could go back to their world as, well, as an ambassador from Earth? Bring one of the Durnans here for treaty talks and such. I suppose so, McLeod said hesitantly. If it's necessary. It looks as if it might be. You had no luck in any of the other nearby systems. No. Then Procyon 8's our main hope. Tell your men we'll offer double pay for this cruise, and make it as fast as you know how. Hyperspace travel's practically instantaneous, McLeod said. We spent most of our time cruising on standard ion drive from planet to planet, maneuvering in the subspace manifolds a snap, though. Good. Snap it up, then. Back to Nairobi and clear out of there as soon as you're ready. Remember, it's urgent that you bring one of the aliens here for treaty talks. I'll do my best, McLeod said. Walton stared at the empty seat where McLeod had been, and tried to picture a green Durnan sitting there, goggling at him with its three eyes. He was beginning to feel like a juggler. Popeek activities proceeded on so many fronts at once that it quite dazzled him. And every hour there were new challenges to be met new decisions to make. At the moment, there were too many eggs and not enough baskets. Walton realized he was making the same mistake Fitzmaugham had made, that of carrying too much of the Popeek workings inside his skull. If anything happened to him, the operation would be fatally paralyzed, and it would be some time before the gears were meshing again. He resolved to keep a journal, to record every day a full, and mercilessly honest account of each of the many maneuvers in which he was engaged. He would begin with his private conflict with Fred, and the interests Fred represented, follow through with the Lamar immortality episode, and include a detailed report on the problems of the subsidiary projects, New Earth, and Lang's terraforming group. That gave him another idea. Reaching for his voice right, he dictated a concise, confidential memorandum instructing Assistant Administrator Eglund to outfit an investigatory mission immediately. Purpose to go to Venus, 
and make contact with Lang. The terraforming group was nearly two weeks overdue in its scheduled report. He could not ignore them any longer. The everlasting enunciator chimed, and Walton switched on the screen. It was Sellers, and from the look of abject terror in the man's face, Walton knew that something sticky had just transpired. What is it, Sellers? Any luck in tracing Lamar? None, sir, the security chief said. But there's been another development, Mr. Walton, a most serious one, most serious. Walton was ready to expect anything, a bulletin announcing the end of the universe, perhaps. Well, tell me about it, he snapped impatiently. Sellers seemed about ready to collapse with shame. He said hesitantly, One of the communication technicians was making a routine check of the building's circuits, Mr. Walton. He found one trunk line that didn't seem to belong where it was, so he checked up and found out that it had been newly installed. Well, what of it? It was a spy pickup with its outlet in your office, sir, Sellers said, letting the words tumble out in one blur. All the time you were talking this morning, someone was spying on you. Walton grabbed the arms of his chairs. Are you telling me your department was blind enough to let someone pipe a spy pickup right into this office? He demanded. Where did this outlet go? And is it cut off? They cut it off as soon as they found it, sir. It went to the man's laboratory on the 26th floor. And how long was it in operation? At least since last night, sir. Communications assures me that it couldn't possibly have been there before yesterday afternoon, since they ran a general check then and didn't see it. Walton groaned. It was small comfort to know that he had had privacy up until last evening. If the wrong people had listened in on his conversation with McLeod, there would be serious trouble. All right, Sellers, this thing can't be your fault, but keep your eyes peeled in the future, and tell communications that my office is to be checked for such things twice a day from now on, 0900 and 1300. Yes, sir, Sellers looked tremendously relieved, and start interrogating the communications technicians. Find out who's responsible for that spy circuit and hold him on security charges and locate Lamar. I'll do my best, Mr. Walton. While the screen was clearing, Walton jotted down a memorandum to himself, investigate Sellers. So far, as security chief, Sellers had allowed an assassin to reach Fitzmaugham, allowed Pryor to burst into Walton's old office, permitted Fred to masquerade as a doorsmith long enough to gain access to Walton's private files, and stood by blindly while Lee Percy tapped into Walton's private wire and some unidentified technician strung a spy pickup into the director's supposedly sacred office. No security chief could have been as incompetent as all that. It had to be a planned campaign, directed from the outside. He dialed Eglund. Olaf, you got my message about the Venus rescue mission okay? came through a few minutes ago i'll have the specs drawn up by tonight devil with that walton said drop everything and send that ship out now i've got to know what lang and his crew are up to and i have to know right away if we don't produce a livable venus or at least the possibility of one in a couple of days we'll be in for it on all sides <laughs> 
Why, what's up? You'll see. Keep an eye on the telefax. I'll bet the next edition of The Citizen is going to be interesting. It was. The glossy sheets of the 1200 Citizen extruded themselves from a million receivers in the New York area, but none of those million copies was as avidly pounced on as was Director Walton's. He had been hovering near the wall outlet for ten minutes, avidly awaiting the sheet's arrival. He was not disappointed. The streamer headline ran, Things from Space Nick's Big Popeek Plan, and under it in smaller type, Green-skinned uglies put feet in Director Walton's big mouth. He smiled grimly and went on to the story itself. Written in the best-approved citizen journalese, it read, Fellow human beings, we've been suckered again. The citizen found out for sure this morning that the big surprise Popeek's interim director Walton yanked out of his hat last night has a hole in it. It's sure dope that there's a good planet up there in the sky for grabs. The way we hear it, it's just like Earth, only prettier, and trees and flowers, remember them? Our man says the air there is nice and clean. This world sounds okay. But what Walton didn't know last night came home to roost today. Seems the folks of the next planet out there don't want any sloppy old Earthmen messing up their pasture. And so we ain't going to have any new earth after all. Wishy-washy Walton is a cinch to throw in the towel now. More dope in later editions. And check the edit page for extra information. It was obvious, Walton thought, that the spy pickup which had been planted in his office had been a direct pipeline to the citizen news desk. They had taken his conversation with McLeod and carefully ground it down into the chatty, informal colloquial style that made the citizen the world's most heavily subsidized telefax service he shuddered at what might have happened if they'd had their spy pickup installed a day earlier and overheard walton in the process of suppressing lamar's immortality serum there would have been a lynch mob storming the cullen building ten minutes after the citizen hit the waves with its expose not that he was much better off now he no longer had the advantage of secrecy to cloak his actions and public officials who were compelled to conduct business in the harsh light of public scrutiny generally didn't hold their offices for long he turned the sheet over and searched for the editorial column merely to confirm his expectations it was captioned in bold black are we patsies for greenskins and went on to say non-human beings have said whoa to our plans for opening up a new world in space these aliens have put their thumbs down on colonization of New Earth, discovered by Colonel Leslie McLeod. Aside from the question of why Popeek kept the word of the McLeod expedition from the public so long, there is this to consider. Will we take this lying down? We've got to find space for us to live. New Earth is a good place. The answer to the trouble is easy. We take New Earth. If the greenskins don't like it, bounce them. How about it? What do we do? Mr. Walton, we want to know. What goes? It was an open exhortation to interstellar warfare. Dispiritedly, Walton let the telefax sheets skitter to the floor and made no move to pick them up. 
War with the Durnans? If Citizen had its way, there would be. The Telefax sheet would remorselessly stir the people up until the cry for war was unanimous. Well, thought Walton callously, a good war would reduce the population surplus. The idiots! He caught the afternoon news blares. They were full of the Citizen break and one commentator made a point-blank demand that Walton either advocate war with the Durnans or resign. Not long afterward, UN Delegate Ludwig called. Some hot action over there today, he told Walton. After that citizen thing got out, a few of the Oriental delegates started howling for your scalp on sixteen different counts of bungling. What's going on, Walton? Plenty of spy activity, for one thing. The main problem, though, is the nucleus of incompetent assistants surrounding me. I think I'm going to reduce the local population personnel before the day is out, with a blunt instrument, preferably. Is there any truth in the citizen story? Hell yes, Walton exclaimed. For once it's gospel. An enterprising Telefax man rigged a private pipeline into my office last night, and no one caught it until it was too late. Sure, these aliens are holding out. They don't want us coming in there. Ludwig chewed his lips. You have any plans? Dozens of them. Want some? Cheap? He laughed, a brittle, unamused laugh. Seriously, Roy, you ought to go on the air again and soothe this thing over. The people are yelling for war with these Durnans, and half of us over here at the UN aren't even sure the damn creatures exist. Can't you fake it up a little? No, Walton said. There's been enough faking. I'm going on the air with the truth for a change. Better have all your delegates over there listening in, because their ears are in for an opening. As soon as he was rid of Ludwig, he called Lee Percy. That program on the conquest of space is almost ready to go, the public relations man informed him. Kill it. Have you seen the Noon Citizen? No, been too busy on the new program. Anything big? Walton chuckled. Fairly big. The citizen just yanked the rug out from under everything. We'll probably be at war with Procyon 9 by sundown. I want you to buy me airspace on every medium for the 1900 spot tonight. Sure thing. What kind of a speech you want us to cook up? None at all, Walton said. I'm going to speak off the cuff for a change. Just buy the time for me, and squeeze the budget for all it's worth. The End of Chapter 12 of Master of Life and Death by Robert Silverberg